Hey, what's up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, and guess what? This is the Senate from Reality Podcast. Yeah, I'm the guy who talks, rants, sometimes babbles, and here we are today. I hope your day is going well, I guess. And, you know, I was thinking about this when I started uh, pushing the record button here. It seems like everything kind of ends up where it should be, and sometimes that can be bad, sometimes that can be good, or sometimes things just end how they should. And it seems like a lot of the... I guess you could say less than democratic countries, liberal countries, authoritarian countries, autocratic countries, whatever you want to call them, they're all kind of slowly getting closer together. Last week, I didn't talk about it because there were so many other things going on that I got distracted. But, you know, for example, Saudi Arabia and China, sounds like their relationship is closer than ever, right? They capped off a meeting, oh, I think it was last Wednesday, and they're going to contribute to each other's wealth, they're going to invest in one another, and they are going to provide security and energy to one another. And energy, (laughs) I mean, probably fossil fuels, right? And people call this kind of the new era of Chinese-Arab partnerships. And yeah, it's worrying. But on paper, it makes sense, because these are two countries that don't obviously believe in democracy. They clearly have a different view of how the world should be. And I think they're okay with kind of snubbing democratic countries that value these things called human rights. But it just seems like people were kind of up in arms about this relationship. But it sounds like Saudi Arabia and China are meant to be together, right? Because, for example, they are aligned mostly on policy. They agree on a lot of political issues, from space research to the digital economy to infrastructure to Iran's nuclear program. They also don't seem to care about the Yemen war. Also, I mean, we know that Saudi Arabia doesn't seem to care about the war in Ukraine since they worked with Russia to spike oil prices. And China's pretty much been at least quiet about the war in Ukraine. And China's been quiet about the war in Yemen. Obviously, they don't care as much about human rights or anything like that. We also know that both of them have big plans for security, infrastructure, and oil. China, China's kind of been struggling this year with oil. Um, I think that's a lot of the reason why we've seen oil prices change is because of some of the lockdowns there. And, you know, the unwritten agreement, for example, between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. has been that the kingdom provides oil, right? And the kingdom can also kind of fill that void for China, which is the world's biggest buyer of oil. And Saudi Arabia is its top supplier, so they have that in common as well. You know, when you think about it more... They don't particularly like it when other countries um, get involved in their domestic affairs, and they don't really get involved in the domestic affairs of other countries. For example, the U.S. will put out statements or historically get involved in the domestic affairs of other countries, but China and Saudi Arabia kind of view like, oh, we don't really care what you do to your own people. We care about how we work with you on a broader scale. And so... They're good at walking a tightrope between working with countries with different views, but also not really standing up for anything. For example, like Khashoggi, you sure did not hear China saying much about when Jamal Khashoggi was killed, for example. And I think, I think that's an important point as well. And, excuse me, I, I think the fun part on this like as well is that the U.S. has, though, though the U.S. has been fairly quiet about Saudi Arabia's visit to or I mean, not sorry, Saudi Arabia's visit, but the Chinese-Saudi summit or whatever you want to call it. The U.S. is not happy, but it's not a surprise. But it's also, again, another sign that Saudi Arabia is going behind our back, much like China goes behind our back. So, like, 
the point of this little intro I'm doing here is just to say it's not really surprising that the United States is kind of getting the cold shoulder from both Saudi Arabia and China. And like I said, birds of a feather stick together, and this just sounds like something of that nature, to, to put it bluntly. Anyways, today, though, I, I want to focus on a couple small topics, Harry and Meghan. I, you know, I, I guess I'll start by saying the first half of this is going to be a little bit lighter today. So we're going to talk about Harry and Meghan's show and why I despise it. <laughs> and then I want to talk about Oxford's word of the year, which is not sicko mode. It's not beast mode. It's goblin mode. Whatever the hell that means. We'll get into that. And then, then I do want to talk about Kosovo. Delaying elections, growing violence in the north, which is where the Serbian, the ethnic Serbian population lives. The Serbian government is talking about deploying forces to that region, even though it's part of Kosovo, but Serbia still doesn't really recognize Kosovo as a country. I'll give you a refresher on all that. But let's start with that light topic, Harry and Meghan. Or maybe not light. I mean, it could be heavy for some people, and I might piss some people off with my thoughts, but we'll start with that. So, I mean, I guess I should just start by saying... I don't know particularly why this whole thing fascinates me, but it does. The whole, you know, Meghan Markle, Harry thing has always just kind of fascinated me. I think it's almost been, what, about a year and a half or two years since the whole, like, royal family's racist, they leave the U.S., and then she kind of just, you know, calls out the royal family, and they basically get disowned by the royal family, and now she's in a war of words and criticizing, and then they become celebrities and move to the U.S. and say they want their privacy, and here they are not doing that. But I, I just have always found them fascinating because Meghan Markle, kind of B, B-list actress, from everything I've gathered, not the most enjoyable person to be around, and she clearly didn't do her research on Harry, first off. I mean, I, I, I don't really want to talk about it too much on here, but I, I do recommend people look up some of his uh, controversies over the years. It makes it kind of interesting then to hear the things she has to say about the rest of his family. But also, yeah, I mean, is it that surprising that a royal family that had colonies all over the world and has pretty much like married into each other for generations, is it that surprising that they might have some out-of-touch views? I just feel like I don't know what she was expecting marrying into a royal family. And I, I will say these two, Harry and Meghan, seem in love. But the reason I'm talking about this is because they have a new show out, which I mentioned a few weeks ago. And I guess the thing about it is it kind of shows me everything that's wrong with kind of victim culture and just kind of our culture of victimhood and all that in the United States right now. And, you know, they, <laughs> I guess, I guess, okay, let's backtrack. So anyways, they have a show out on Netflix now. I think the first three episodes are, have like, have been released at the time of this recording. I'll admit that I've not watched really any of it. <laughs> I knew it was not for me when I couldn't even finish the trailer, which is like two minutes. I think I got like a minute and a half in and I was like, God, I need a cocktail. And I, you know, didn't want to drink that night. So I was like, I'll just turn this off and save myself from that. So anyways, I just knew it wasn't for me when I couldn't finish the trailer. However, the funny thing is, is that even outlets like CNN and the New York Times and the Atlantic, which are definitely like center of or left of center, they've even said it's not that good. And I think it has like, I think 44% of people on Google at least have said they liked it. So not great numbers. And I'm kind of thrilled. Maybe it's cynicism. I don't know what it is, but I'm kind of happy to see that people are saying the show is kind of awful. 
of course, I'm sure you'll meet that one person who's like, this show spoke to me. This was exactly what I needed right now. I just, I just find the two of them just disingenuous and annoying. And we'll get into some other people who think that as well. But, you know, they left the royal family. They said they didn't want to be trailed by the media, obsessed over and watched by the world. And of course, that's just like total BS because... I didn't know that having a mini-series about yourselves and then doing all these interviews and having a podcast and being in the limelight is what you do if you don't want attention, right? It just seems like the new mini-series is doing the opposite, and I believe they have more shows coming down the road if my research is correct. And I think CNN has a good point about this show. It has an article that reads here in quotes, Indeed, what we learn from Harry and Meghan is that the Duke and Duchess of Sussex are less interested in staying out of the spotlight than staying in complete control of how the spotlight makes them look. And I think that sums up exactly and perfectly why I don't like the show or them, to be completely honest, because they're royal snowflakes. They are just like the definition of people who claim to be victims but don't want to hear criticism. And if you criticize them, that you, you know they're the victims and you're the jerk. And they want attention, but they don't want negative attention or criticism. They want their cake and they want to eat it too. It's just, it, it just doesn't add up. And they, they want their story told and they're making money off of it. And it's just irritating when, you know, I mean, also she has a podcast. It's like, just kind of the same rehearsed topics of like kind of leftist ideas, more or less. But it's coming from someone who's just not really a great speaker, and you can tell she's just doing it to do it. I, I just I just don't understand this too. And I read in the Atlantic, I believe it was, yeah, it was the Atlantic, that they signed a reported hundred million dollar contract or deal with Netflix for multiple projects. So even after this six, I think it's six episode miniseries goes away. We're going to get more of this potentially. So brace yourselves, brace yourselves. And I guess, I guess that's my issue with this is it just kind of shows that you have two people of privilege complaining about things and lecturing the rest of us about it. And like, I listened to some of Meghan Markle's podcast. That's what she does. This show is pretty much them just, oh, you need to sympathize for the guy who's never worked a day in his life and is doing very well, and the lady who married into a wealthy family and then didn't like their old school views, when it's literally like, that's what a monarchy is, is old school, right? And this is not me saying that she probably wasn't picked on, I'm sure she was, but that kind of comes with the territory, I hate to say. But before we move on, I just have to add that The Atlantic actually has another amazing quote from another kind of, I would say it's a fairly scathing review of the show. And the article writes here in quotes, Mary and Megan have a rare talent, (laughs) I love this, pointing out things that reasonable people would agree with, but doing so in the most annoying way possible. For example, they say racism is real. The tabloids were out of control during Harry's childhood. Women marrying into the royal family undergo an extended misogynistic hazing. All these are true, but the way they say it makes makes you just almost want to detach from the whole thing and say, I don't care. And I'm not saying that in the sense of like, these things should continue or it's good that they're happening, but they make you just almost want to be complacent with the whole thing when you hear them talking. And I just think that quote is so accurate because that's what I gather from them. And yeah, I mean, just another fun part of, I think, the culture wars in the United States and around the world. So I don't know why I spent so much time on this. Apologies if you didn't like it. I'm sure I will, not everyone will be happy with this and my thoughts on them, but I just had to say it. The Royal Snowflakes are... 
are gathering attention even though they claim to be hiding from it. So like I said, I'm kind of starting out with some lighter topics today. And like I said, maybe it's the holidays or the fact that the Kosovo topic in a little bit will be less happy. But anyways, Oxford does this thing which I wasn't really aware of until I was looking into it and I wanted to find something to talk about that was not as heavy. And Oxford Oxford does this word of the year thing. And this year, its word of the year is goblin mode. Goblin mode. I mean, it's two words actually, but let's not get into that. So the Atlantic has an article here in quotes that notes, the 2022 Oxford word of the year chosen for the first time ever by public vote went to goblin mode by a 93% majority. Oxford defines goblin mode as a type of behavior which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly, or greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations. It's a, it's a phrase that I guess is evocative. And it does tell a story about how many of the people in this world are doing today, kind of in the post-COVID world. And the article talks about how the first record of goblin mode occurred in 2019 when someone tweeted here in quotes, M was in full hyperactive goblin mode last night. It was as if she ate a bag of sugar-coated candy, washed it down with some Red Bulls. And I, I, guess, I guess the idea of this word is that you, when you're in goblin mode, you're M, you kind of enjoy yourself. Like trolls, you know, hang out under a bridge and like to kill people and they don't seem that happy. But goblins are kind of cozy in their cave, eating their stuff, not caring about outside pressure, what people think of them. You know, you're sitting there in a in ripped clothes, sitting on the couch, you haven't showered and you're eating candy and you don't care. I think that's my understanding of what goblin mode is supposed to mean here. And in a sense, I guess this I guess why this word was picked as the word of the year from Oxford is that it's a perfect way to describe what has kind of been going on in society for the last few years. It's kind of the idea that people used to actually have to wear like nice clothes when they'd go to work or people would really care to dress up when they went outside. And now, you know, with Zoom and everything, you have people wearing like sweatpants and a collared shirt on top or people are buying more sweatpants than jeans now if you work from home. It's like you're kind of comfortable in your own just kind of relaxation and sloth-like mode, right? And... It seems to me, I guess, that during the early days of the pandemic, many of us kind of unlocked this new mode in the video game of life, right? And it's just uninhibited home living. Obviously, not everyone did this, but, you know, I think of my time when I was teaching and working in um, Las Rosas in, uh, in Madrid. And when we got locked down, I still had work to do, but it wasn't like the nine to five schedule that was kind of easy to follow. It became like, oh, I have some projects to do. I'll sleep in late. I don't need to change. You know, I'll watch some movie on the lunch break, get this done for an hour. You know, let's have some beers and play beer pong with the other people I lived with or whatever. Stay up late and play video games or watch movies. Attempt to make carrot cake and then eat it all. Or, you know, maybe you don't need to worry about eating an early dinner. Just eat whenever and eat lots, you know. Oh, I've wore these sweats two days in a row. You know, who cares? Like, that's kind of the goblin mode. You know, you, you kind of get into this just mode of like, I'm kind of just comfortable in my own just kind of moment here. <laughs> and the Atlantic, though, actually kind of brings up and now like maybe getting a tad bit more serious, if anything about this topic can be serious, is that the ability to go goblin mode, the article argues, 
was kind of a necessary evolution forged in trauma. And, you know, about a year ago on this podcast, I talked about how there's a longing of some people for the early days of the pandemic when there was the uncertainty, but also the ability to just kind of hang in and not worry about things. And people were like, I kind of missed where you just couldn't leave the house and you were just like knitting and making bread and all this stuff. And I think trauma does interesting things to people. And in this case, the ability to kind of become comfortable in just your own comfort and your own kind of just stagnation for a little bit, I think was forged in an important trauma for it. Now, I'm not saying everyone keep this up, like, let's just become sloths, right? That's not at all, because I love not having to stay at home 24-7. So I just want to make that clear. But I, I think it came out of the pandemic and has just made us comfortable with being home and just enjoying that feeling. Now, like I said, I'm not personally good at goblin mode. I'm glad we're out of it. But I think it just does explain just like a lot of aspects of what's happening right now. Anyways, uh, moving on to the next subject, moving away from uh, goblin mode, I do want to talk about something less cheery, kind of the bulk of the remainder of this episode. Basically, Kosovo, which is a fairly new country that is not unanimously recognized, but it is recognized by a lot of UN members, it's having a pretty bad issue with Serbia and also like ethnic Serbs in the north of Kosovo. And the recent iteration of events has been going on for the last few weeks, but I figured it was kind of time to just touch on kind of some updates on what's happening in this kind of complicated part of the world, because I think there's a lot of parallels and a lot of lessons here. So the economist notes here in quotes, Dosa Osmani, Kosovo's president, announced that upcoming local elections in the north would be delayed amid an outbreak of violence there. Kosovo had scheduled the elections in majority Serb municipalities for December 18th, but days of protests have included explosions and gunfire. The volatile region has been on edge over a spat about car license plates. Kosovo wants to replace ones issued in Serbia with its own. And this is a complicated one, so before we get into the, this recent iteration of explosions and gunfire and anger, I want to give some background because... Over the summer, I did do an episode on this whole license plates issue and why it happens and what it kind of means. But for those who may be new to the program or missed that episode, I'll kind of give a little brief update or recap of that. So basically, Kosovo unilaterally declared its independence from Serbia in 2008. So very recently, if you want to think about it on the scope of affairs. And it's gained diplomatic recognition as a sovereign state by like 97 different countries, according to reports I'm reading. Tensions between Kosovo's Albanian and Serb communities have pretty much simmered and eventually erupted into violence pretty much throughout the last hundred years. And the worst, most recent example would be the Kosovo War of 98 and 99 of, you know, so about, about 23, 24 years, 24 years ago. And Serbia, just to put it into perspective, Serbia and the ethnic Serbs in Kosovo are mainly Orthodox Christians, right? And Kosovo mainly consists of Albanian Muslims. And so that's definitely a huge root of all these tensions. And Kosovars or, and Albanian Muslims were some of the groups that were mainly impacted by the atrocities committed by the Serbs during that awful Milosevic era of terror. You know, the Serbian, I mean, a lot of people call it the Bosnian genocide, right? Milosevic is d definitely some sort of a neo- neo-fascist, neo-right-leaning autocrat, grievance politics, etc., and one of the worst atrocities. And I think 
the, the acceptance of Kosovo eventually kind of came out of wanting these people to have their own state. I don't know enough about all the dynamics of how that happened, but it was a very bad time for a lot of that region. And moving on, these countries still have tensions, but it's mainly on territorial border disputes, religious and ethnic differences as well. And it should also be noted that Serbia still considers Kosovo a territory of Serbia, so they don't recognize Kosovo as its own country, which gets difficult when you have ethnic Serbs living in a portion of Kosovo. And basically over the last four or five months, tensions have been rising again over something that maybe to some people would seem mundane, but is really about something bigger, I guess would be the best way to put it. And the tensions are over moves basically by Kosovar forces to basically require ethnic Serbs living in Kosovo in the northern regions to obtain license plates that are issued by Kosovar authorities. And the Washington Post has a good passage that kind of describes this as an issue and why. And it says here in quotes, the latest flare-up in tensions is tied to new rules over license plates and cross-border travel documents. Under regulations that were meant to take effect August 1st, Ethnic Serbs living in villages in northern Kosovo would have to apply for license plates issued by Kosovar authorities for their vehicles. Since the late 1990s, some in that population had used Serbian license plates with, with a different status. Authorities in Kosovo tolerated the dual-track system to preserve the peace, but said last year they would no longer do so. And, I mean, I should just add that if I was the Kosovar authorities... I probably wouldn't have made this rule. I understand that, you know, technically the ethnic Serbs live in this country and you need them to have a license plate that, you know, aligns with the country you live in. But also I think you have to think that these people are moving across the border quite frequently. And when you have now a Kosovo license plate and you have to show additional documents, it just makes life harder and it's going to piss people off. That's just my opinion on this. And I'm actually not for a lot of the Serbian side's views towards Kosovo. But I think Kosovo is kind of poking an ethnic grievance-based bear here by doing this. And I think it's kind of stupid. And again, I could, be, I could be wrong. Let me know if I'm completely incorrect on this. But that's just how I feel. And a little bit more before we get into what's recently happening. I also read that Kosovo would start forcing Serbians visiting Kosovo to have additional entry-exit papers. So again, I think poking the bear here. And it's something that Serbia already does to Kosovars. So they're just trying to get back at them. And so this is just like a game of chicken that I think is happening. And it's just reignited tensions between the, between the two sides. And I talked about this over the summer. I think I talked about it in August, I want to say, because roads were blocked on the borders. There were deaths and violence and things were spiraling out of control. And, you know, with everything else happening in the world, I kind of forgot about this for a little bit. But clearly nothing's particularly different. And that leaves us where we are today. So you have, yeah, still people angry about additional paperwork, license changes, etc. You have Serbia that doesn't particularly recognize Kosovo. And you have the Kosovar authorities also feeling a threat from these northern regions, knowing that Serbia wants them. And so aside, aside from that election being delayed on December 18th, it also looks like Serbian leaders are expressing concerns about how to handle this situation in ways that I don't like. So according to Reuters, in quotes here, Serbia will ask NATO peacekeepers to let it deploy Serbian military and police in Kosovo. 
Although it, although it believes there is no chance of the request being approved, President Alexander Vucic said on Saturday it's possible. Now, I mean, I think this is, I mean, we talked about poking the bear and playing chicken. This is like a whole other step towards like, I don't even know what, but like closer to some sort of conflict because I think this is an atrocious idea on so many levels. But again, it doesn't surprise me because President Vucic has been referred to by some as Little Putin. And if you know anything about this guy, that's a, probably a pretty fair comparison. Something that always disturbed me about Vucic is that he used to be Milosevic's spokesman. And Milosevic was a very dangerous leader, and I would say one of the most genocidal maniacs of the last hundred years. One of them, not the most, but he was definitely in that conversation. And, you know, the current president of Serbia has ties with Milosevic, which is not good. Obviously, this guy is not Milosevic, so I will give him that. <laughs> but it's still not good. He still at some point thought Milosevic was doing something and he liked it. And so Vucic now governs Serbia in the kind of populist strongman style of Viktor Orban in Hungary. So kind of that illiberal, we claim to have a democracy and institutions, but I've eroded them from the inside. And also I'm like angry and I kind of admire Putin. He's also an Orthodox Christian who kind of has that similar post-Soviet era emergence like Putin or Milosevic or Viktor Orban. And he's somewhat relied on Christian nationalism and grievance politics and fundamentalism to guide his rhetoric and guide what he does. And that's why Kosovo has always been an important piece of what he says, because in a sense, a lot like how Putin talks about Crimea, from my understanding, and I'm not a Serbia-Kosovo expert, Vucic has similar views about northern Kosovo and probably Kosovo in general. So when I hear that he wants to send in troops to this region, I don't like to hear that. And I think it would only just make things much worse. Now, it gets even more interesting because we have to remember that before Kosovo was a country, the UN was highly involved in trying to broker some sort of peace to end just the ethnic violence and ethnic cleansing that was definitely happening throughout the Balkans. And from my understanding, there was a UN resolution and it was developed back at a time before Kosovo was its own country and it was just a region. Region, you know, a part of Yugoslavia and then the breakup happens, right? And this resolution, though, allowed Serbia to deploy troops to the area that ethnic Serbs had populations. And Reuters notes here in quotes, the resolution says Serbia can deploy up to 1,000 military police and customs officials to Orthodox Christian religious sites, areas with Serb majorities, and border crossings. Now, I will add before I continue with my other thoughts here is that if you had one country and you didn't have an independent country, it would make more sense. But the problem is, is now you have two separate countries and it seems like that resolution is a little bit outdated. And as I alluded to before, this all happened when Kosovo was a region and not a country. And now this would literally mean Vucic could send troops into a different country as long as the Komar can, per, can basically certify that as okay. Also, this would be the first time that Belgrade, the capital of Serbia, requested to deploy troops in Kosovo under these provisions of the Security Council of the UN. And of course, they did this to end the conflict in 99, but things have changed. And also, of course, President Vucic, I think, would see this as an obvious escalation. 
because his views regarding northern Kosovo are flawed. And I think this is a bad idea. Because while it seems like Serbia is just mulling this idea and that maybe they'll change and not do it, and maybe by the time I record this, they'll step back, it does seem like there's somewhat of a complete separation between what the Kosovar officials and what the Serbian officials think about this problem, and that's when you see issues. And obviously, these things are not completely similar, and there's definitely distinctions, but this is kind of how Russia, like the current Russian Federation, views the Crimean Peninsula. Historically, for example, there were Russian-speaking people in the Crimean area and Donetsk and Luhansk, right? And that makes sense because it's a very complicated area with a lot of overlap in history, much like like parts of Lviv in western Pol- or in western Ukraine have Polish ties. Of course, that happens. But people like Putin or Vucic, in this case, see this region as part of a greater nationalist and historical propaganda narrative, and. I just worry that Serbian nationalists do see northern Kosovo in a similar light. So now when the Kosovar authorities are somewhat poking the bear and not responding well to unrest in the north, it worries me. Now, now the worst headline I think I've seen for this entire thing comes from Euronews. And I, I believe it was it came out on the 11th. And it reads, in quotes here, Serbs barricade roads in Kosovo as specter of ethnic feuding looms. Whenever you hear specter in a headline, it always doesn't make me feel too warm and fuzzy. That's kind of one of my rules of thumb. And apparently a Kosovar policeman was injured during the, I guess you could say the unrest and the protests and the violence. And this led to the police increasing their presence in the north, which is always never a good sign. And then on the other side of the issue, I guess Serbians are pissed off because a former policeman of Serb ethnic descent was arrested after attacking the Kosovar police, and he's being treated unfairly, according to them. And last week, I think things really escalated in the northern areas. And this would probably explain why you don't want to hold an election up there. (laughs) Not, Not really the prime situation to have an election. I also was reading that... (laughs) there was a mass resignation of Serbian workers inside of public institutions and the bureaucracy in the North. So like all these, pretty much all of this points to problems for me. None of it points to good news. And of course, we're going to have to wait and see what exactly happens here. But it just seems like both sides are not really being too responsible with this. Of course, I don't think Serbia is helping by saying they want to send in the military. And like I said, they're just mulling the idea. Hopefully it changes. But at this time, I just don't like what I'm seeing. So we'll have to keep that watched. I probably later in the week want to talk about Italy and the EU and kind of why Moroni's having some failures. But for now, that'll do it for today. I want to thank everyone for listening. Again, Alex Kapitko here, Centered from Reality Podcast. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube. I probably missed something, but you get the point. Take care. Adios. Adios.